3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. And now just to give a, a very quick introduction in regards to speaking with Cheryl Axelby, co-chair of Change the Record. She's a Narunga woman. And Australia's state and territory governments are being urged to follow the lead of the ACT after it, t- it released a new report outlining its roadmap to raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility and keeping young children out of prison. The report shows that raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility is necessary, achievable and straightforward. Aboriginal health, legal and human rights organisations welcomed the highly anticipated report and called on other Australian governments to follow suit as a matter of urgency. The report outlines the findings of a review led by Emeritus Professor Marag MacArthur, Aboriginal Consulting Company, and also Dr Akino Suoshi from the Australian National University, which was commissioned by the ACT government to identify alternative models to meet the needs of 10 to 13-year-olds once the age is raised to 14. It brings together evidence from around Australia and around the world about what interventions, programs and services ensure that children and their families get the support they need. And I wanted to take that opportunity to read out a few bits and pieces from the media release put out by the Human Rights Law Centre in conjunction with Change the Record so that we can set the scene. Cheryl is, is a First Nations woman with lived experience. So every state and territory government criminalises and imprisons our children at far higher rates than non-Indigenous children. We welcome this step from the ACT government to change these harmful laws and instead provide support and services to children and their families. And we're now going to be speaking with Cheryl from Change the Record. Hello, Cheryl. Welcome to the program. Hello, and thank you for um, having me on. It's really lovely to have you, Cheryl. I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself and your title. No worries. I'm Cheryl Axelby, Narunga woman from South Australia. My people come from the York Peninsula in South Australia. And um, my role is co-chair of Change the Record, which I've held now probably for about five years. And what is Change the Record? Change the Record is a coalition um, of First um, Nations-led, and I think it's the only First Nations-led justice uh, body. Um, We do have around about 18, 19 different um, organisations um, that have joined our cause, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, 
such as Amnesty International, the Law Council of Australia. Um, now we've got the um, Aboriginal, National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, um, and yeah, many more um, who all come together um, to continue to do two things. One is to look at how we can influence policy and influence positive change for our people, particularly for the mass over incarceration rates of our people in this country, and also to reduce family violence. I'm so glad that you, you talked about that because it is really important to have First Nations-led programs. There's not mm. enough of it around, is there, Cheryl? That's true. And, and you know, we are non-government body. We're non-government funded. Um, and we pride ourselves on that to ensure that we maintain an independent voice um, for First Nations peoples in this country. What's the website for Change the Record in, in case listeners want to have a look? Yeah, it's um, www changeofrecord.org.au Thank you so much. So the Do and Time show is a show not just for prisoners but also in terms of looking at women um, and also looking at First Nations people as well in terms of providing a voice for communities that are deprived of voice. Hmm. So it's good that, that, that you're on the show. Um, and I've been reading with interest about the Human Rights Law Centre media release, and there's so many organisations that are involved in this, including Change the Record. Yep. The Australian prison system has been designed to oppress and harm First Nations children since colonisation. Can you talk about that and discuss why, why the age needs to be raised? Well, our mob have been you know, incarcerated since the time of colonisation of this country, um, you know, and, you know, the law of the land was set up to particularly keep us off our own country um, and, you know, we'd be charged for criminal offences, you know, when we're trying to hunt and gather for food, in, you know, in early days and, you know, our mob would be imprisoned. Um, and all that, as far as, you know, I'm concerned personally, you know, has always been a strategy to... Um, imprison our mob so that, you know, our land um, in this country could be overtaken. And we continue to be, um, you know, and during that time, you know, up until now, we still have um, laws, policies and practices that are imposed upon us um, and not for, you know, not for the benefit of us, um, and particularly when we talk about imprisonment of our people. You know, we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the whole world um, of First Nations people, which is appalling when you think about um, how, you know, Australia sees itself as a lucky country. Well, many of us mobs don't see ourselves as being lucky in our own country. And, of course, we're still not yet being recognised in our own country, um, as you know, many other First Nations countries have. And, you know, when we look at the impact of past uh, practices, laws and policies, you know, moving us of our country, putting us on missions, then, you know, getting us to assimilate back in mainstream society... Um, and also, you know, the stolen children's generation has a, had a devastating impact on our generations. And, you know, we still are seeing, even today, the intergenerational impact um, of our mob being incarcerated and many who have gone through the child protection and youth justice systems um, who lead into, you know, um, and who are more than likely to be um, recidivists returning back into the adult prison system. So it's this system um, that I strongly try and advocate to educate the rest of Australia that there are different ways that we could be 
dealing with a lot of the issues because a lot of our mob get locked up and held on long remands. Um, they're not you know, provided opportunity to bail because of the tough law on crime policy that's happening across this country. And, you know, many of our mob are being incarcerated and held on long remand and doing longer sentences and then with this, they actually got a prison sentence. So, and particularly our younger generation, you know, like, you know, I think it's our 10 to 13-year-olds make up around about 60% of kids held in custody, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kids on remand. And, you know, it's time for us to look at how we do things differently because, you know, people challenge the system. They say that the system is doing what it's always meant to do, which is imprison people. Um, but we don't actually have a rehabilitative context to our prison system, hence why we've been strongly advocating for raising the age that they, we could break that cycle of incarceration for our future generations. How is a 10-year-old child hmm. going to know the difference between right and wrong? Well, they don't, and the medical evidence um, provides, you know, there's a lot of medical um, uh, professionals who support the raising of the age because of the brain development of a child um, and the cognitive development of a child, you know, they don't understand the consequences of their action. Um, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, when we look at kids in school, you know, I think you're going to be 10 or you're probably 10, 11 year old before you can get a pen licence. And yet we're still, in this country, um, imprisoning 10-year-olds um, in a system that gears them up for the adult system, in my personal view. And I've worked in the justice system ever since I was 17 years of age um, when I first started working at the Aboriginal Legal Service in South Australia. And I was just recently CEO for the last nearly 10 years. Um, and, you know, so I've, had, you know, I've, I've seen the... Um, Royal Commission, I've, you know, I've been around when that happened, the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the recommendations, um, and yet we're still yet to see each state and territory um, fully commit to implementing those. And, you know, we're still seeing a lot of our mob dying in custody. Tell me more about your work in that area. My work in the area is probably over 30 years, and I've worked in, you know, youth justice, I've worked in child protection. Um, you know, I've got a broad understanding of the system and how it operates, um, and I've also worked in the NGO, like our community sector. And you know, I think that when we see those gaps um, in the system and how we see the system drive our people more and more into the system, rather than it actually focusing on you know creating positive change in the lives of our people, particularly after all the uh, trauma and ongoing trauma that we carry as a result of past policies and practices and even current practices. Um, you know, that's when I'm pretty much, you know, dedicate um, my voice to trying to make a change for, you know, our people across the nation. And, of course, the recommendations of the Royal, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, very few have been implemented and there's been very little change. Well... I was um, co-chair of the National Aboriginal Trust under legal services as well for about probably five, five, six years. And, you know, in that role, we had continually highlighted the need for the implementation, the full implementation of the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, the federal government, you know, um, under Minister Scullion had done a, like a review of the Royal Commission recommendations and tell us um, that they have been um, you know, very highly implemented, um, but we challenge that because, you know, if we look at some of the laws and policies and practices and look about, you know, how you know our people are diverted away from the justice system, 
those policies and practices are not in place. You know, we wouldn't have that representation of our people in custody and we wouldn't have the ongoing, I think we're in about over 470 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, you know, which is very um, tragic and we still don't see a lot of justice for our mob who, do, who die in custody. We don't see justice for families um, and we don't see anyone being charged. Yeah, and that's definitely connected, isn't it, with young people? Absolutely, you know, and we also have, you know, very high suicide rates, you know, of our younger generation in this country. And, you know, all of these things are, in my view, connected with the ongoing trauma and the oppression that we as First Nations people also experience in our own country. It's really important to talk about that, isn't it? And you mentioned the missions, and mm. really history in, is in many ways repeating itself. It certainly is, and... You know, when we look at the stolen children generation, um, you know, and I call it, you know, um, like at the moment, I think the incarceration rates of our people, um, you know, men and women, um, and our, particularly our children, our children make up over 50% um, at any time on average of kids locked up. Um, I think it's around about over 30, probably close to 40% of our children um, who are removed to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in this nation. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, imprisonment rates have escalated over the last 10 to 15 years and they make up over 33% of um, Aboriginal you know, women in, in, in custody and same with our men. So what, you know, it is, what's telling us is that we are probably the most imprisoned people um, in this country and it's not because of our offending rates and it's not because, you know, it's, it's the system that it has... You know, which was, goes right back to removing our children from community and culture and country and not putting the effort in to deal with the poverty and the intergenerational poverty um, that exists in a lot of our communities. And uh, we've seen a lot of funding being pulled out of our communities over the years by the federal government. And, you know, during the ATSIC era, whether you like ATSIC or not, it actually did provide great community development opportunities and, you know, First Led Nations community um, programs at the, at the community level, which were, you know, fantastic. Oh, that's good. That's really fantastic. Absolutely. So, Cheryl, can we just quickly talk about the report which yeah. outlines the findings of, a, of the review? It was that in Canberra in, in regards to, yeah. you know, raising the age? Yeah, well, what's happened is over the last three years, so federally, all the Attorney-General, State and Territory and ACT had got together and they were going to look at race and the age um, because, you know, there's lots of calls and there's a lot of great support for it across Australia. It's taken them three years now to get to a stage where some states and territories have determined, I think, to go alone because there's still been no outcome. So ACT in particular um, were one of the first territories to put their hand up and we actually welcome you know, their courage um, to actually, you know, take... You know, they're leading the nation with a clear commitment to raise the age and now they've actually further done a review about how um, to get us there. So what the report sets out is a clear achievable roadmap to ensuring that no children under 14 years of age is arrested, criminalised or imprisoned in the ACT. And, you know, we see it as a roadmap to a safer and more supportive community for everyone, you know, and as I've said, our mob you know, particularly our children and our, in ACT and around the country are pushed into the criminal legal system at far higher rates than non-Indigenous children. 
you know, the po- policies and the over-policing. I mean, one of the things I haven't mentioned was, you know, the over-policing that actually does happen and the racial profiling of our, of our families and our children. So we welcome this report because it clearly outlines the importance of investing in health, housing, family services and supports, you know, at school to help children grow and thrive. Exactly. And, and how can children grow and thrive in a prison, in particularly when they're not on country? Well, absolutely. And, you know, and if you look at some of the rural remote communities, you know, many of the children are taken away um, to, you know, hundreds if not even, you know, thousands of kilometres away from community um, and don't have access to family. And if we've learned anything from the Northern Territory with Dondale, um, we saw that horrific treatment of our kids um, in care and custody over there. Um, you know, I'll never, ever forget the, the footage of the, the Four Corners story. Oh. Um, it, it's just so heartbreaking. Um, you know, that's the sort of treatment that our children um, are being subjected to. Then, you know, we've got to look at, and this is why we're calling for raising the age, because we believe that keeping kids out of prison gives them a brighter opportunity, you know, and a, a great opportunity to be able to, you know, create positive change in their life and, and you know, become, you know, um, you know, who they want to be um, with the supports in place. But in order for that to happen, there's, there needs to be more consultation, doesn't there, with Aboriginal communities. And also, isn't, in, particularly in the Northern Territory and also in parts of far north Queensland mm. and also other parts of Australia, that isn't the, that a second, that isn't the second language, isn't English the second language of Aboriginal people? Yep, and, you know, we do have, you know, rural and remote communities, you know, where language is, you know, you know, English is second or third, um, you know, language, you know, for our mob. So, you know, when we look at what could be done, and there's things already happening in our communities, but we've seen a lot of reforms happening where we have our Nunga courts and our Koori courts, Murray courts in each of the states and territories. But what we're talking about is that we want something done um, where the children are not coming into the system and that where there's a really good community development, um, therapeutic um, response that is funded because I'm not sure whether a lot of listeners know, but, you know, a lot of our kids don't get support prior to unless you go through the child protection system or you come to the attention of, of the youth justice system. Schools quite often expel our children and, you know, so they don't have the time to deal with a lot of the situations like that happens for a child, you know, in their early lives. But we, you know, challenge that and we say, well, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at the billion-dollar industry in the prison system and also in the justice system itself, if we could put that money back into community development and develop Aboriginal community-led initiatives like we've seen with Maranooka um, at Burke and there's some other programs around the state and there's one in South Australia, you know, like as in, um, you know, they call them justice reinvestment-type programs, then, you know, they demonstrate, you know, that they can work. Um, and when communicate, take control, they can identify and prioritise what other services, responses that are needed in the community because you know, the government throw a lot of money at NGO sector, but there's no real planning with localised communities as to what you know, our needs are and where best that money could be spent and how to design programs that meet our community mobs' needs. Absolutely. Cheryl, I hope you have in mind that you've staying on a bit longer than 15 minutes, but I felt like it was really important to discuss these things. 
No, well, thank you. And, you know, we also just want to highlight that there is a growing um, support for raising the age. We also welcome the recent decisions of the Queensland Labor Gar- uh, Party and the West Australian Labor Party to change their policies to support raising the age. Um, and we've also seen that support from the Greens across the nation um, in Queensland and Victoria. So I encourage the listeners to have a look at Change the Record on our page um, and, you know, um, sign up in the context of showing your support for raising the age because the more that we get this message out across Australia, you know, and we're starting to see some states and territories, you know, starting to look at and introducing this, but we need more of our voices being heard to say that this is the right thing to do and the right thing for our future generations. It is really important, isn't it? And, I mean, in all honesty, before we finish, I, I get quite tired of, you know, politicians and even some some right-wing community members saying, oh, yes, but, you know, Aboriginal people have to get over the past. Mm. It's, it, it, it's not, it shouldn't be about saying things like that. No. Well, you know, we've got, you know, the work that was done with you, a restatement of the heart, which is calling for, you know, our voice um, to Parliament, which is something that I think that we need because we need more around of in Parliament um, so that we can actually be at the decision-making level to get policies and practices changed for our people of the future. So, you know, it's time for the politicians to listen. Um, Australia is actually quite, um, you know, on the international front. There's a lot of support at the United Nations by many countries for Australia. I think it was over 30 countries um, earlier this year were calling for Australia to raise the age of um, criminal responsibility. So, you know, on an international front, um, there's a lot more attention on Australia now. So let's hope we start seeing that positive change happening in our own country. Cheryl, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was great having you. Thank you. Let's talk Enjoy soon. your day. Thanks a lot. No. Thanks. Bye. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast. My name is Jacob. Um, and we're joined today by Fong. Welcome to the program. I hope you're all having a splendid morning. Um, that was an update from the Australian Services Union. Um, my apologies, actually it wasn't, it was from Doin' Time, um, and it was about a new report on the roadmap to raise the age of criminal responsibility. Um, and that program was brought to you by Doin' Time, Marissa Spazzaro. So thank you to her for that awesome reporting there. And did you know that the, the ACT is the only jurisdiction um, that has drafted legislation to raise the age? Um, so in Victoria, they are still considering it. Um, and in many other states, it's not even on the table, which is quite a shocking um, uh, reflection of our, our system, particularly after some of the findings of the Royal Commission into Youth Justice, which was brought on um, by the Turnbull government following the Dondale Detention Centre um, disasters happening there. Um, so I hope everyone's enjoying their newfound freedoms out of lockdown um, and that you're all staying safe and staying well. I'm just going to play a community service announcement and we'll be right back after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. 
to having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Hello, welcome back. Hello, Jacob. Good to, to hear your voice. Um, apologies, everyone. Uh, my lack of technology skills had meant that we didn't hear Fong, but now she's here with us. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me this morning. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, we're going to go to a track now. This is one of my favourite songs. We've played it on Breakfast Radio before. It is called Motorcycle by June Jones, who is an arm-based singer-songwriter. Yeah. 
Motorcycle by June Jones. What a fantastic track to start your Monday morning. Thanks for bringing that to us, Fung. Oh, it is such a banger. Honestly, truly um, uplifted my mood. So up next, we are bringing you a piece from Annie McLaughlin on Solidarity Breakfast. And this is an update on the Australian Service Union members who are taking an industrial action today. Um, So Annie sat down with Christy Lee Tyrrell and Tim Sullivan to bring you this report. We've got uh, Christy Lee Tyrrell and uh, Tim Sullivan. Hello, you guys. G'day. Hey, Annie. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) I'm highly relieved. Um, Yeah, you're from, you're uh, organisers for the Australian Services Union and you've got some things to tell us about launch housing. Things aren't as happy as it should be. Can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, yeah we can. Tim. That's right. Yeah, Tim, you go. It's <laughs> hard. We can't see each other. For the no. listeners, we're going to cut each other off accidentally. So, Annie, please bear with us. Certainly will. <laughs> G'day, Tim. Tell G'day. us. The, the um, ASU members at Launch Housing have um, already started industrial action. They've started with some low-level industrial action um, around their enterprise agreement negotiations. Um, and they're heading towards... Um, a stop work action on Monday from 12 to 1.30. So um, the issues being uh, um, during negotiations, members are seeking a classification review and um, formal consultation. And um, basically the employer, every time we meet, they just say no and they cross their arms. There's no discussion. There's very little negotiation um, actually occurring. We're going there and uh, delegates are going there to the negotiating table in, in good faith and trying to um, negotiate for a good outcome for all the workers at launch housing and management are um, basically refusing on all of the key points. It's interesting, isn't it, because uh, uh, launch housing has a, uh, a good reputation as a uh, service provider for homelessness people. I mean, it's, uh, can you give us a little bit of a background to launch housing's history? Yeah, yep, we absolutely can. Um, so they're a massive employer in the housing and homelessness space and they, they do provide some amazing services. These workers have been um, slogging it out through the pandemic, through side exposures in COVID, through trying to get these really vulnerable um, clients off the streets, members of our community. And um, Launch has been doing a lot of that work. They continually get renewed funding from the government to deliver these services. They've got hundreds of properties across Victoria. They provide crisis accommodation. Um, They provide support for those in public um, and supported accommodation. So a massive employer. We've got um, very high union density there, so we're really proud of that. We've got some very organised delegates and members across each of the sites, which are spread from the... um, 
north to the far southeast um, and Launch. Launch were originally a merger a few years ago of, um, if you remember, Hanover Services and Home Ground Services. They became a, a massive organisation um, and now they're not playing ball. <laughs> mm. So they, they handle 200 properties and this includes, this gives us an idea of, because uh, um, homelessness services, unless you're a homeless person, uh, often just is this, you know, uh, uh, amorphous sort of understanding, but it's a very practical thing. I mean, they they uh, uh, deal with rental properties at market rate, below market rate, and social housing and rooming houses. So it's a, a broad church, effectively. Uh, and you also they also do outreach. Now these are very challenging areas of work. That's right. I think that these workers are um, the people who are there for, for you when everything else falls apart um, and, and they help you sort yourself out. And they're, um, they're you know, as you sort of mentioned there, they sort of, um, you know, in some ways operate in the shadows out of, out of the limelight while um, maybe the people at the top get the kudos for, for the work that the, the frontline workers are doing. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, these workers are doing all of this this. Um, pretty challenging work in, in what is an even more challenging time for everyone, uh, being through the COVID pandemic. Um, their employer won't even show them the respect of, um, you know, showing them how their classifications are worked out and, and ensuring that they're paid appropriately, um, and consulting with them on, on appropriate change, or on, you know, upcoming change. Well, it's interesting because, like you say, the CEO, um, Bevan Warner has been building a very high profile as an advocate in inverted commas for homelessness and even appearing on the block. So he's, you know, he's down there getting their middle, going to the middle ground to make it into something normalised in the uh, general public. And one would say that that was about fundraising and uh, pre- presenting yourself as being an important service. Um, and, you know, being smart. But this idea that uh, they don't actually want to sit down and talk to their workforce is quite interesting. I mean, uh, uh, Christy Lee, you were saying that uh, yesterday when I was speaking to you that the management pulled some Swifty. So can you sort of give people an understanding of a recalcitrant management? Yeah, I can. Uh, it's, it's not a hard ask you've set me in this environment. We've had multiple meetings with launch management. Um, the meetings are run really amazingly by these solid delegates and we wish we were along here today but it is hard getting delegates to talk to the media because you don't want them to get pulled into disciplinary meetings. So um, they've sent us along today but I think quite a few of them are listening from home and their friends and family are backing them in this. So in terms of the um, enterprise agreement meetings that we've been having, there has there has been discussions but we we really argue that there's really positional bargaining going on here and we're going to the meetings, the employer's talking, but there's no movement and there's no genuine, seemingly genuine consideration of what our members are seeking. We're getting a lot of hard nose, hard nose, hard nose. Our members are giving us um, speaking points and arguments to make and um, some real live examples of what... Um, the employers not agreeing to and how that's going to impact them on the ground in their working lives. And the employers are just not genuinely engaging in the conversation. The delegates are asking questions. Sometimes we're not getting answers to those. But I think the Swifty you're talking about yesterday is the employer 
wrote to all staff, asked them if they're taking industrial action, said if they didn't reply to a survey, they wouldn't be paying those who do indicate they're going on strike and those who don't respond to the survey. So you... So they're applying pressure. Absolutely, they're they're applying pressure and um, and you know potentially um, trying to frighten people out of taking that industrial action um, and you know sort of forcing people to state their position to the employer. Where um, you know the advice that we've received is that that's not actually required and that people don't have to reply to that um, that email and notify the employer. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you describe the workers with their hands tied behind their backs because they're not allowed to speak up in a public forum about what's going on for them in their workplace, and at the same time, baseline intimidation from the employer. That's right. Yeah, yep. And and that's been, um, you know, the similar sort of double standards have been shown um, throughout, um, you know, negotiations and some other dealings with the employer where um, the positioning from... Um, you know, the employer's negotiating team is uh, quite hostile. Um, but the minute that anyone on the, um, the ASU bargaining team um, shows any emotion or, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, starts to, to get a little bit heightened about, you know, responding to something, um, that's when the concern kicks in that they might be up on, um, you know, a, a disciplinary, um, uh, you know, procedure or that they might get... Um, you know, some other action taken against them. It really uh, underlines why collective action is important and why the support of the union is important because uh, it's like a boxing match with, uh, uh, but but you're uh, tied to the floor. <laughs> totally agree, yes. <laughs> yeah. You've already mentioned a couple of the uh, claims, yep. the classification review. Yep. Now, this is tied directly to pay rates above the and the call for pay rates being above the absolute legal minimum uh casuals pro progressing pay bands after 12 months of service and uh and then it follows on to consulting staff before major change and changes to the use of fixed term contracts now this of course goes to the belly of the uh the beast of our capitalist system so can you talk a little bit about these these uh, issues yeah, Am I, can, can you hear oh, me again? Yeah, we can. Yes, Sorry, I'm not sure it's the internet connection or something. No, no, on. no, no, it's, it's um, the ether and it's raining. It is, yes, it probably <laughs> is. But, but yeah, that, that's right. These are the core issues for workers the world over. You want job security. All we're asking for is a clause that is really tight that means that the employer can only use fixed-term contracts where um, it's a genuine fixed-term role. So, unfortunately in the housing and homelessness space, in the social community services space, there is funding that is short, fixed-term funding, pilot programs, etc. And in those instances, our members and delegates understand that the employer is going to be, their hands are going to be tied and they're going to have to offer fixed-term contracts. But what our members and delegates want to ensure is that they are offered ongoing, secure employment in every, in every um, role that that's possible. So the employer can't just pop them on a contract because that's what they want to do or they want to extend the um, trial period essentially and see how workers um, pan out. In terms of the um, casualisation of the workforce, 
uh, members employed at Launch Housing, they can be there for 10 years. Some of the programs, there's not always a casualisation at launch, but some of the programs really rely on some dedicated, trained and skilled um, casual workers to fill in where there are gaps. So if we look at the crisis accommodation, for example, you're going to get people calling in sick and they've got a casual pool of workers. Some of them were permanent employees years ago at launch and have stayed on as casuals to... Um, support the organisation. Now, they start at a certain pay point. Everybody else progresses as they go through along, as long as they're doing um, the job as they should be. Each year they progress till they meet the top of their pay bands. Not so for these casual workers. And Launch is saying, nah, no way, we're keeping them there and we're going to keep them starting at that lower band. Um, those are some major issues for some of our workers. One of the other issues we haven't mentioned, Annie, for our workers is um, it's really hard, particularly during the pandemic, for our um, members who work shifts, so some of the overnight workers in the crisis accommodation, the weekend workers, when they take a sick shift, they just get paid a base rate, not based on their penalties, and we're seeking to try and get them to be paid as if the shift were worked for, um, whenever they take personal leave. And again, Launch is saying they're just not looking at that. And for our um, workers working in those services, they're saying sometimes they're going to work when they're not feeling up to it. They don't have sick symptoms, but when, you know, they're having a bad day or, or they might need to take it off the mental health, etc. but they have to go to work because otherwise they can't pay their own rent. Yeah, yeah, it's really difficult work. It is really challenging work. I mean, it's a, it's like this uh, thing about, um, you know, people say about teachers, and I'm not, it's not comparative, but you know, they people say, oh, teachers have an easy ride, except that when they themselves are put in front of a whole class of people and have to deliver um, uh, material that's been developed by the teacher. Uh, they suddenly realise it's actually crushingly hard. Well, mm -hmm. in your in this area, you've got this highly emotional and uh, uh, situation where the worker is actually absolutely uh, uh, in charge of outcomes. You know, like that they're the people who have to deal with any crisis. They're the ones who have to be alert every minute of their time in these places. And you know what, Addie, Tim and I were talking the other day and um, we were talking about the fierce advocacy of our um, launch ASU delegates throughout this process. And if, if I was ever to find myself in a situation where I needed some support from a service like launch, I would um, trust that I would be in fantastic hands of the best advocates that we've got in the state because these workers have just continued to sit at that table. They're telling management they're not backing down. They're really clear about what their points of contention are and that they're sticking together and I think those skills are directly transferred from their skills as, as advocates on the ground for the most vulnerable in the community. So they are amazing workers, my hat's off to them every day and we are so proud of them for staying strong on this issue. It, tell me about the, uh, the stop work and uh, the process because it's a softly, softly approached. It began uh, on Monday, uh, last Monday and it's continued. That's yes, right. So, Tim, so, you want to touch on this one? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, it started on on the 11th of October with um, yeah some low level actions. So it started with um, members wearing badges. Uh, so stopping work for a very brief period to attach uh, badges to their clothing, um, and so you know and, and to wear union um, you know t-shirts to work that kind of stuff. So just building awareness that um, this is happening and making it clear that these people 
people are united and that people are together in this, that it's not just um, perhaps the, you know, the very staunch delegates at the bargaining table, but it is the broader membership. Um, and then um, it stepped up to using union footers in their um, emails and changing their voicemail both to reflect that they're taking industrial action. <laughs> that really must so, have got up their nose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and what we've heard, which is fantastic, is, um, you know, not just that it's raising awareness, but also that some members are getting responses from people outside the organisation saying good luck with your industrial action, um, which is a fantastic thing for members who, who might feel like they're sort of isolated in their, in their work and in their action to be getting that from, from the broader community and stakeholders. Um, and then, um, you know, management haven't, um, uh, you know, still we've, we've been at the negotiating table since that and, and management haven't made any, you know, concessions, haven't, haven't agreed to negotiate properly. Um, so uh, the next step is um, industrial action of, stop, well, stopping work on Monday so, um, for an hour. So um, there's, there's two pieces of industrial action on Monday. One is that... Um, the ban on workers taking um, lunch at the same time has, has been, you know, like everyone's going to take their lunch at the same time. Previously, and in normal circumstances, workers would stagger their lunch breaks so that service continues, um, but they're, they're all taking their lunch break um, and then at the same time, and then they'll take industrial action following that of um, stopping work, walking out, being out the front, you know, holding ASU flags and, and standing together and showing that they're, that they're united and that they're um, committed to um, yeah this this struggle for um, for what they believe are their, their rights and what they need. And you want the public to support you, don't you? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. One hundred percent. So, um, if listeners or you know if anyone wants to support um, the the workers who are taking this action, um, there's launch housing sites, as Christy Lee said, there's launch housing sites all over Melbourne, uh, all over Greater Melbourne, and um, they're listed on the launch housing website. If you go to contact us, you can see all of the different sites, and there are members um, taking stop work action at every site, so there's very likely, if you're in the Greater Melbourne area, there's very likely a, um, a, a launch site near you where people will be taking action, and they'll be out the front of those sites from 12pm on Monday. Yeah, well, I'll say uh, Collingwood, Dandenong, Fitzroy, Northcote, South Bank, South Melbourne, Glen Waverley, Broadmeadows, St Kilda East, Paran, Northcote, Cheltenham, St Kilda. There's lots to choose from. Absolutely. Oh, I think she's gone again. Sorry. There you go. I don't know, the internet and the rain again. Sorry, Annie. I think what a better way to send a message to launch management that the community are watching and that reputations do get damaged through things like this and that the way that you treat your staff is really a good indicator of the head of the organisation and the guts of the organisation. So if you, if you, if you want to know which sites there are going to be more people at, if you want to know less, where you might want to spread out, please also contact us on the ASU Vic Taz social media page. We'll hook you up with delegates and ASU organisers who will be at site and we'll make sure we'll pack a really big punch here to try and send a strong message to management. Thanks, you two. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for having us in solidarity. <laughs> Good morning. You're on 3CR. 
And that was Annie speaking with Christy Lee Terrell and Tim Sutherland, uh, ASU organisers, who spoke about the industrial action that is taking place today at 12pm. Uh, so this stop work action is going for 90 minutes, which includes a 30-minute lunch break and a 60-minute stop work action. And... Um, uh, workers are encouraged to participate uh, either working uh, on site or from home. If you'd like to m- know more details about this, you can go to asuvictaz.com.au and we will also put a link in our show notes um, later this morning. Well, the time is uh 7.48, we're going to go to another song now. Uh, this is Cool As Hell by Baker Boy. I've been feeling like a lone wolf Dancing in the streetlight, howling at the moon When I hear the beat, not a kababuyun Murmaram, redakay, that's what a brother do Spreading that mood, bro, get me on the dance floor We could have a dance off, do it all night Feeling all juiced up, getting my groove on Set it up super, we could take a flight, alright? I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself Now I put it on you Cool as hell I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself now put it on you Looking back, are you really on track? Are you really on the path to where you wanna be? Doing out a nungo, only know me. I ain't in the coma, I really don't sleep. I ain't even tripping every minute that I'm living. I'ma kill it on the rhythm, we can keep it low key. I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself. Now I put it on you. Cool as hell. I said, ooh, you got me feeling myself. Now I put it on you.
You're listening to 3CR and that was Cool as Hell by Baker Boy. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow-friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Good morning, welcome back. You're listening to 3CR um, and you're joined this morning by myself, Jacob. And Fung. And it's a pleasure to have you along. Up next, keeping up with our workplace rights theme, um, we're going to play you a segment with Adele Welsh, who is chatting about the details of Women and Gender Diverse Workers Conference um, that is taking place this weekend. Good morning, Adele. Hi, good morning, Jacob, and good morning to all the listeners. So, Adele, tell us about why Geelong Women Unionist Network has called for this Working Women's Conference. Sure. So, Jacob, this is our third conference in our Working Women Get Organised series. In the past, we've looked at family violence and unequal pay, and the, t- the theme of this conference is Union Women on the Front Lines of the Pandemic, So obviously women have been on the front lines of the pandemic right from the start and the industries that women predominantly work in have been heavily, heavily impacted in one way or another. So community services, health, teaching industries, you know, retail workers, their workloads have significantly increased. Other industries such as retail and hospitality, you know, have been shut down for lengthy periods of time. And we know that our really important um, early education workers, they, they were the first to be kicked off JobKeeper. So we're going to be looking at all of those things and we're also going to be celebrating women's, you know, our significant achievements during the pandemic as well as, you know, working in industries that have been heavily impacted. Our workload has dramatically grown at work and at home. Women have often had to take on the role of homeschooling children, but we've still managed to build union, like grow the membership and to still run winning campaigns while we're doing all of that. 
and in the face of significantly rising rates of family and domestic violence. So we're going to be highlighting the role of insecure work and just really, really looking at, you know, women's achievements. And it's an opportunity for women to come together in solidarity, to share organising tips and, I guess, you know, to give hope to other women. Yeah, so you've given a good background to the conference. Can you tell us about the, what are the dates, how do people access it and, and so on? Sure. So the date is Saturday, October 30th, so one week tomorrow. We've got a 9am start. Probably the best way to get a ticket is to go to our Facebook page, Geelong Women Unionist Network. If you're not on Facebook, um, you can ring Geelong Trades Hall on 52211712. Tickets are only $10 um, and you get a whole day of, you know, union women solidarity. The conference agenda, so the, the conference title is Women Speak and Act, and the theme's going to be Union Women on the Front Line of the Pandemic. So we've got an acknowledgement of country from Auntie Lynn. We're really excited about our keynote panel. We've got Lisa Darmanin from the ASU, Annie Butler from the ANMF, and Lisa Zanata from the CFMEU. One give out a women's award every year. This year we actually had three winners. So we've got two of them coming. So we've got two outstanding ASU delegates and they're going to be talking about building union during the global pandemic. We've got two morning workshops. So the first is the systemic underfunding of our health system. So we've got a frontline nurse, we've got Laurie Sharp from the ANMF and we've got an organiser from VARPA. The second morning workshop is Union Women Leading the Fight Back Against Low Wages. So we've got an early educator, we've got some warehouse women and on that panel as well we've got Alison Pennington. She's a senior economist from the Centre for Future Work. In the afternoon, we've got Christine Cousins, a member for Geelong, and Chris was actually the founder of Guan, and she's stayed really connected to us, you know, since she's been elected. And then we've got two afternoon panels. So the first is Union Women Campaigning Against Systemic Violence. So we've got a worker from the Victims Assistance Program, Speaking, we've got one of our Guan members who's actually been really instrumental in a big campaign we've run this year around the lack of justice for women um, in cases of sexual assault and rape. And we've got Zita Henderson from the ANMF. She's an ANMF member. She's going to be talking about climate change as a feminist issue. And then we've got two afternoon workshops are we hoping to have some new speakers? We haven't actually confirmed them yet, but we're still working on that. Then our second workshop is how to run a meeting without being spoken over. We've got um, an AEU organiser running that panel. Then we're going to move forward into, you know, next steps. We're going to be talking about the Reclaim the Night March and, you know, what, what the women's movement is doing locally in Geelong. 
We've got Lorraine Casson from the AMWU talking about being a woman in a male-dominated industry. And then I'm just going to give a short close on, you know, our next steps and how and what one's going to be moving forward with. Oh, yeah. Well, so a really full day. Yeah. So, again, the easiest way, the quickest way is to go to our Facebook page, Geelong Women Unionist Network. All the conference details and the link to get tickets is on the page. Or you can ring Geelong Trades Hall on 52 211 712. And I guess one of the the really key points we'll be making at the conference, women now make up 55% of union membership. Um, so we're the overwhelming majority of members in the union movement. And I guess the conference is an opportunity, you know, to, I guess, to learn some union skills and to hear about why being in a union is important. And I guess when we do things like run our run our how to run meeting workshops, often we run workshops on public speaking as well. So it's all about giving women a voice, even though we're the majority of members in the movement. We don't all, our voices and our needs don't always get heard. So this is what the conference is about: women having a voice and being heard. Well, thank you very much, Adele, and all, all the best with your upcoming conference. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jacob. Bye. That was President of Geelong Trades Hall Council, Adele Welsh, speaking with Jacob from Friday Breakfast. For more info on the online conference, uh, you can go to the Geelong Women's Unionist Network on Facebook, and we can pop the link in the show notes later this morning. Um, just wanted to clarify or make it clear that while the name is Geelong Women's Unionist Network, it does um, it's for women and gender nonconforming people as well. Perfect. And up next, we're going to be chatting a bit about disarmament. So as we know, this week is the United Nations Disarmament Week, um, and 3CR every morning at 8 o'clock are going to be bringing you some special coverage on an issue that I think um, has been quite swept under the rug for quite some time, which is the increased presence of weapons companies in schools and our secondary education system. And a recent report released by the Medical Association for the Prevention of War found that major weapons companies are seeking to build positive brand recognition um, and essentially allure secondary students into careers in defence and weapons. And this happens through sponsorships, events, competitions, um, tours of industry premises. So this morning um, we're going to be chatting to James Brennan, who is from Renegade Activists, um, which is a group that has been campaigning um, against the new Australian military pact with the UK and the US. Um, so up we, we have James here from Renegade Activists. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot for having me on. No worries. Um, so James, I'm a big fan of disarmament, and I'm also a big fan of um, poetry, so I, I really liked the, the name of your recent uh, forum, the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, Orcus and some of the work that, that Renegade do? Yeah, thanks. Um, it was really great to have that event um, a couple of weeks ago now. There was um, 
well over 200 people came to the online event. Uh, and, you know, we've had, I guess, not, not just through militarism, but obviously the last kind of 18 months to two years has been, um, you know, pretty difficult space for people to organize. And, um, you know, it seems like the only news that we hear about um, at the moment has been around COVID. So when the news broke of the AUKUS agreement, which is a military agreement between the UK, the US and Australia, I think it really took a lot of people, um, you know, by surprise. It was it was announced in a way that was quite unusual. And, yeah, it was a shock to kind of see this kind of play out this way. It really seemed to have Australia as the first person, Scott Morrison, to be speaking in the press conference. And it really seemed to be something that was driven by Australia. You know, it turned out that it was 12 months um, organising to get this agreement. Um, you know, the front part of, of that is the nuclear fueled submarines. But there's a lot more of a deeper, um, you know, issue with what I would see with it as well. And that's about increased uh, American troops training in Australia. You know, we know that there's a really heavy presence of U.S. troops in Darwin uh, and as part of the Talisman Sabre military exercises that happen uh, in Queensland and sometimes in the Northern Territory as well where they practice kind of war game scenarios. And, you know, we know things like Pine Gap and other U.S. military bases that exist around Australia, you know, the, the increasement of U.S. Presence, presence there will increase as part of the AUKUS agreement as well. So, I mean, I think all of those things, people who are interested in disarmament, they raise a lot of concerns, I think, for all of us, that we have a, a foreign government that is imposing their kind of military will on on our country. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when we, when we talk about the increased, um, militarization of schools, I mean, sometimes when we, when we talk about disarmament, we talk about the military, we, um, don't really discuss, um, what's happening in school curriculums and, and that children from a very young age are being exposed to, to, um, the military in, in, you know, quite sinister, um, and uh, covert ways. Could you talk a bit about um, what the uh, concerns are around the increased influence of militaries in schools? Well, I think, you know, it used to be the kind of what we would think about as military in schools, perhaps, you know, the army kind of coming around and handing out some flyers that this could be an alternative for people to follow after school as um, joining the military. But it's become something much more insidious than that. You know, a lot of the funding for particularly science programs, you know, some math programs, are heavily linked to NASA, to um, the U.S. military itself, to weapons companies. And this feeds not just into um, high schools, but across, you know, most universities in Australia, um, you know, in the U.S. and the U.K., these become so intertwined within the learning that it becomes difficult then to talk about the issues within militarism itself because then people saying, well, this is funding for schools for, you know, kids to learn. So it becomes so intertwined into the everyday running of capitalism that it becomes hard to oppose that way. And I think, you know, if you follow that along the line, what you can see in the U.S. is a lot of towns that are towns that, you know, their main industry is producing weapons, uh, you know, 
exactly. So if you follow that from school through to jobs, some people's whole life will be intertwined with militarism without, you know, them necessarily putting on a uniform and, you know, becoming uh, a soldier as, as we might kind of really imagine being a part of the military is. It happens in a way that is a little bit more, um, you know, behind closed doors. You don't necessarily know what you're doing um, per se, but the, if you follow that line of funding, um, that's where it leads to. And I think that's the a really big issue that it's great, the work that um, is being done to kind of expose some of that. Certainly. I, I can recall myself um, in high school at various career fairs, and there was always a stall there from the Defence Force, and I think a lot of people just see it as another career, um, which is kind of crazy to think about now, um, given everything that's happening. Um, so I guess we've talked a bit about the, the influence of uh, militaries on schools. Can you tell us why it is important um, for us to disarm? Well, I think, you know, the fact that we live in this world where there's so much kind of conflict within nation states and, you know, even within people to have the weapon capacity to be able to eventually... Um, you know, I don't want to get too grim on a, on a Monday morning, but we have the weapon <laughs> capacity around the world to end, you know, the world itself. So I think that's a, a grim reality that we need to kind of push away to a part of our brain, you know, when we think about these things because, you know, kind of getting fixated on, on the amount of nuclear weapons and things in the world um, would make it difficult for us to do anything else, I think, if we fully understood the amount of weaponry that is, is available and it continues to um, be built around the world. And, you know, I think we're part of, I guess, international relations theory and, um, you know, statehood sort of theory is that the nuclear weapons are there as a deterrent. You know, they're not something that is going to be used. It's just, it's like a threat, you know, that a parent might tell their um, child they're going to miss out on dinner or something, but of course, you know, they're still going to give them dinner. And it's it's sort of as childish as that, really. It's like well, you're holding this weaponry that can destroy everybody and you're saying you're not going to use it. Well, then you don't need to create it. You don't need to hold it there in the first place. And it's all the way down from, you know, not just the way the capacity of how that, um, how weapons like that can be used, but, you know, how they're created, the um, c- contribution of that, gives to climate change, um, you know, the resources are used, um, nuclear waste, uh, all of those kind of things I think are a huge problem. There was a really great article written last week by Jeff Sparrow about, um, uh, in The Guardian, if you want to um, have a read of that, is about the impact that militarism has on climate change. And the US military is the biggest contributor to climate change in the world. And I think, you know, it's a really great, opportunity to see how linked some of those kind of things are to militarism as well. It's not a separate issue to, to climate change, to, you know, being able to spend more money on, on health care to fight things like the pandemic. They're intrinsically linked. You know, our governments don't need to be spending on military that is contributing to climate change. We could instead be spending that on money to look after each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think what you were saying before as well, uh, James, about the, um, I guess, how childish it is to um, have these weapons. It's, it becomes, you know, a sort of um, 
like tit for tat thing where countries like, well, this country has nuclear weapons, so we we want to have them as well to protect ourselves, and it kind of, you know, has that domino effect where more and more countries decide that they want to have these incredibly dangerous weapons um, just to, I guess, show off their their strength and their power. Um, and yeah, going back to what you were saying as well about how intertwined and how linked you know militarism is um how how it affects climate change um yeah i think that's something that we can't forget um and yeah just talking about our healthcare system i mean especially now um you know in melbourne we're out of lockdown and we're going to see increased pressure on the hospital system um i mean the funding that could go into that is being spent on weapons and and other things as well so yeah i think sometimes it's hard to see how it directly relates to our everyday lives because it seems like they're you know these um politicians are um making these decisions that don't affect us in a way that we see it you know directly every day but um you're right it does trickle down and we do experience it um quite greatly um what would disarmament look like um you say that you know, uh, we could just redirect spending elsewhere, but um, what would be um, the alternative or, or what could we be doing, what could governments be doing now with with this, um, with these weapons? Well, I think it's a really great point, though, you say about, um, you know, not seeing how this is linked because it's not just the, you know, what we see through the military um, and about disarming as well. I think that if you look at things like the police force in you know, this is a trajectory that the US has been going on for a very long time, but something that the Andrews government has been, um, you know, very keen to push is militarising the police force in terms of the vehicles that they drive, you know, the so-called non-lethal weapons that they use, and, you know, we've seen some of these be used um, against the anti-lockdown protesters over the last little while. And, in fact, you know, a lot of the whole response to the pandemic has been one of law and order. You know, it's not been one to, um, you know, they're still building the quarantine um, facilities. They haven't built new hospitals. They haven't put all this money into healthcare. They've instead, you know, had a law and order response to that. And I think that if we shifted that in the whole way of, you know, for a start, the military is called a defence force, but there's nothing that they do, you know, none of the kind of military white papers that come out or the kind of announcements that they make, the activities that they do, they're not defensive, they're offensive. You know, they're, they're trying to position themselves to be involved in, in militarism, to be involved in war, to combat against, you know, so-called issues with China and, and other nations there. It, it's not... Um, they're not being defensive, saying, OK, well, we need to make sure our citizens are protected... I think if you look at those kind of things, what would that look like? What would it look like for us to feel safe? Well, I don't think having nuclear field submarines is making us feel safe. I think if we had a good, um, you know, standard of living in the country, if we had things like a treaty for Aboriginal people, if we had healthcare, you know, if we're able to um, position money to help our Pacific neighbours and things like that, we would perhaps feel more secure. You know, I think that part of... Um, you know, part of capitalism is to have divisions between each other, to feel like we need to be safe and make sure that, um, you know, a neighbour country knows that we, we could attack them at any time and, 
you know, I think that those kind of things, it would certainly take a long time and it takes cooperation, but, um, you know, we could be a leader in saying that we, we don't want to have a, a military that's offensive, that uh, we want to be looking after each other and our neighbours first. And I guess that would be a good starting point. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, what you just said just made me think of um, how the community has really um, stepped up to look after each other during COVID. You know, if you look at grassroots campaigns and mutual aid um, programs and, and funding that have been started by, you know, people in the community to help each other, um, we could take those principles and those values and apply them um, mm. on a larger scale Um and, you know, what you were saying about helping out our neighbours in the Pacific just made me think of our decision to stop um, producing, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, mm-hmm. you know, when that, you know, was something that we could, that is something that we could be producing and and um, donating to other countries because we have that capacity to do so. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we've certainly let... A lot of our neighbours um, down many times with the, the governments that we have. Yeah, um, I think you know it. It just shows that the I guess the idea of or the definition of of militarisation and um, all that sort of violent warlike language um, doesn't have to uh, be you know related to the military per se. Um, mm. We can apply that to um, everyday interactions um and you're right i think you know disarmament doesn't um doesn't end with just uh this you know the end of production of um weapons itself but it actually goes beyond that to um you know uh, actively proactively uh protect or look out for um other countries not just ourselves Absolutely. I think that's a really important part of trying to be a, you know, a leader in, in this region. Um, and I guess, you know, in a way of trying to build that kind of movement, it, it takes a really long time. It's really difficult to kind of organize against, you know, the most organized, um, thing in the world, the military industrial complex. Um, but, you know, we spoke earlier about uh, an event we had, um, a few weeks ago. We've actually got another event that's coming up as well on the 4th of November at 7pm. Um, and as part of that, we've got Emma Shortest, who's written a book about the uh, Australia-US alliance, and David Brophy as well, who's written a book about uh, the China panic and, I guess, you know, talking about the impact of Australia's conflict um, with China and what that has on people in Australia. Um, and Jacob Grek as well, who's been a long-time campaigner and researcher on the weapons industry. So... That's a, you know, another event where people can get together around the country and to begin to sort of organise against militarism. Awesome, yeah. And where can we find more, more details of those events? Yeah, so if you go to the Renegade Activist um, social media pages or renegadeactivist.org, um, you can find all the info about um, that event. There's also on the website, um, there's clips from the previous event, uh, there's information on you know, kind of how to get involved and... Um, links to some other 3CR radio shows that a bunch of us are involved in and other resources there.
Amazing. Well, James, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a real pleasure having you on, and I think we can all say that you've shared some really amazing insights um, on the topic of disarmament. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me. So that was James Brendan from the Renovigade Activists, and you can also catch him on Uprise Radio on Wednesdays on 3CR from 5.30 to 6. Um, the report that was mentioned earlier by Jacob uh, is called Miners and Missiles, and you can access that on the Medical Association for Prevention of War website at mapw.org.au. We highly recommend that you check out that report because it does um, give us a really detailed insight into how weapons industries uh, massively influence uh, school curriculum. And we'll be discussing this more tomorrow on Tuesday Breakfast, uh, we'll be, uh, as we will be speaking with Elise West from MAPW about the report's findings um, and how this impacts on schools. And we'll also be discussing how these weapons industries and uh, defence organisations target the recruitment of uh, young girls and women um, uh, into um, the military as well. Awesome. And we'll be right back after this. The ninth Koori Art Show is calling for entries. This is your chance to showcase your work. All works entered will be exhibited at the Koori Heritage Trust. To enter, you must be a Victorian-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist aged 17 years and older. There is a total prize pool of $32,000. Go online to kooriheritagetrust.com.au to register. Entries close on the 1st of November. Koori Heritage Trust is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR um, today. The time is 8.22, um, and I hope everyone's having a fantastic morning. Uh, we just had a really great chat with James Brennan about disarmament um, and if you didn't know, this week is the, the UN Disarmament Week. So every morning at 8 a.m., 3CR is going to be chatting about what this means. And we're doing a particular spotlight on an issue um, regarding the increasing influence of militaries in schools, which no one really seems to be talking about. Um, and I, I think we do need to talk about it a bit more. So Definitely. please tune in. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, nobody is talking about it. Well, not enough people are talking about it because mm. of something that James said before about how it's so um, closely linked with school funding. All these schools are getting lots of money to run STEM programs um, and have these really exciting projects for school students. And so the influence of the military that comes with that is sort of brushed aside or maybe swept under the rug Um yeah, <laughs> but totally. we'll be we'll be exposing all of that this week and yeah, talking we'll about be, that in um, more detail. Peeling down the layers of capitalism and disarmament, as we always do here on Monday Brekkie on 3CR. Um, and now uh, we've got a few news headlines for you, brought to you by our resident news junkie, Fong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to start off with by... Uh, 
just giving everyone an update on the COVID outbreak at the Park Hotel Detention Centre. There are now... It has been confirmed that there are now 20 asylum seekers and one staff member that have tested positive for COVID. Um, so that is almost, I think, 50% of the people that are being detained there. Um, there are weekly protests being held outside the Park Hotel. Um, so if you are interested in, in supporting um, the asylum seekers who are being locked up there, you can uh, go to the Park Hotel, which is in Carlton, every Saturday. So the next rally is on October 30 um, at 2 p.m. Mm. Um, and we just would like to remind people that if you are attending, just please make sure you are um, uh, socially distancing, um, wearing a mask and, and being COVID safe. But um, it is really important that we as a community come together to show um, show them our support because they're not getting much support from the government. Certainly. It, it breaks my heart just how long they've been stuck in this indefinite detention for. And I think now with COVID, it's like, what are you doing with the government? You know, I, I think that it's it's horrific that they're still there. Um, and it's just a, a gross mismanagement of the entire system, the fact that they're being infected. And we've heard stories coming out of there of paramedics not being called when they need to be called. Um, and it's like, where is the duty of care and where is the accountability? So it is really frustrating. Um, and I would highly recommend uh, supporting the work of RACVIC, which is the, the Refugee Action Collective in Victoria. Um, they're doing some fantastic advocacy on the issue, um, and fingers crossed, you know, we will see some, some good outcomes um, before yeah. this yeah, becomes even, even more of an issue. If you um, can, cannot attend protests or um, yeah, don't feel comfortable um, attending, you can. There are alternate ways of supporting the people being detained. You can call Karen Andrews, who is the current Minister mm. for Foreign Affairs, and, and there's a great... Um, social media account called Fight Together for Justice and they post regularly about um, Park Hotel and various campaigns that you can get involved in. They do have an, an email template and a phone template that you can use um, when contacting your local MPs um, and we can pop that in the show notes later on this morning if you'd like to do that today. As we shall, as we shall. And um, I think another important issue that's been um, a hot-button topic uh, for the news headlines this week is climate change and COP26 happening in a week, and someone hasn't done their homework by the sounds of it. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so last week we did talk about the fact that the um, Nationals had, you know, a marathon meeting um, discussing net zero by... Uh, 2050 and after four hours they were unable to come to any sort of <laughs> concrete position um, but it has been reported that they have agreed or well, national MPs have agreed to sign up to a net zero emissions target by 2050 um, on the condition that they receive a regional transition package and mm. an extra cabinet position so mm. um, yep yeah, in a they had a two-hour-long party room meeting on Sunday and Barnaby Joyce said that the party had agreed to a quote-unquote process to support the net zero target, um, 
dependent on Cabinet signing off on a package that would protect regional economies. We don't know what the details are uh, yet of this package, um, so we don't know where this money would be going, what it would be used for. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do know is that they are um, negotiating for an extra Cabinet position um, that is expected to go to Resources Minister Keith Pitt. Mm, well, it, it's certainly a welcome sign of progress. I think the fact that they've signed up to net zero, um, obviously it's it's still very much the, the bare minimum. Um, and other countries right now are, in fact, negotiating 2030 targets. Yes. And that's actually the focus of Glasgow is to increase ambition. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the world treats uh, Scott Morrison and... Uh, I do. It's it's just interesting to me how the, the progress on such a major issue has been um, so defined by the work of a small party that has about 10 MPs in the House of Reps. Like, it, it baffles me. It's um, incredibly frustrating. It is. It is, truly. Um, well, anyway, the time is now 8.28, so I believe that's all we have time for today. Um, but thanks so much for joining us. If you want to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed today, you can hop on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Monday Breakfast, and we will have some details for you there. And just remember to tune into Tuesday Breakfast tomorrow from 7 a.m. We'll be uh, bringing you another special at 8 a.m. for Disarmament Week. Thank you. This is Jacob. And Fung. Have a good day. Bye. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.